Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Alex Bryan highlights ETFs with high yields and high risks. Our analysts share two stocks they are excited about. Christine Benz offers advice for open enrollment during the pandemic. Russ Kinnell provides ideas for foreign stock funds. And Alyssa Stankowitz discusses Morningstar's new ESG commitment level rating. So let's get started. Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. and Alex Bryan from Morningstar Research Services weigh the risks and rewards of high-yield ETFs. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. The current low-yield environment means that higher yields often have significant risks attached to them. Joining me to discuss some exchange-traded funds that do have high yields but also high risks is Alex Bryan. He's Morningstar's Director of Passive Strategies Research for North America. Alex, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex, yields are so low today. Let's discuss some of the risks that investors can run into by over-prioritizing yield. Investors really love to get income from their investments, but it seems like a really risky time to do so, right? Absolutely. Yield doesn't tell the full story of any investment. So if you aggressively chase it, it can lead to high risk and subpar total returns. So for example, if you think about how um, high-yielding stocks get that way, there's really one of two avenues. Either one, they're paying out a large share of their earnings as dividends, which leaves a small buffer to preserve those payments should their earnings dry up. Or two, they're trading at low valuations, which often reflects weak business fundamentals. And a lot of times it's a combination of those two things. So if you're just going after yield really aggressively, you can end up owning some stocks that may not be able to sustain their dividend payments. And even if they can, uh, may turn in disappointing returns. Now, on the fixed income side, there's a really strong direct relationship between yield and risk. Higher yielding bonds tend to carry greater credit risk, greater volatility, greater downside risk. So it, it's really important to, to look beyond just yield because it certainly is not the full picture. So we're going to delve into a couple of exchange-traded funds that do have attractive yields, but you think the risks are not worth it. So um, let's start with Spider Bloomberg, Barclays High Yield Bond. The ticker is JNK. This is a high-yield bond fund. Let's talk about that one and, and why you think it's so risky. Yeah, so let me just start by saying that this fund does a fine job representing the composition of the U.S. high-yield corporate bond market. Uh, it's just that I think that this is a market segment where most investors shouldn't go for income uh, because not only do these bonds carry considerable credit risk, they're also more highly correlated with stocks than investment grade bonds uh, as lower quality corporate issuers ability to repay their debt is influenced by the business cycle, just like stocks. So if you're thinking about your bond portion of your portfolio as the defensive part, high yield bonds really don't play that role very well. Um, I think you'd be better off you know, if you're looking for higher returns, just owning more stocks and less bonds. But anyway, high yield bonds are, are just, it's a very risky area to be. And this particular fund compounds those risks because it is market value weighted. So it, it follows uh, bond issuing activity. So that drives the composition of the portfolio. It tends to give greater weightings to more heavily indebted issuers, which isn't necessarily the best way to construct a bond portfolio when you're talking about high risk issuers. So I think if you really are committed to getting exposure to high yield bonds, active management is a better way of going uh, than in a passive index fund like this. But like I said, for most investors, it's probably best to stick to the investment grade part of the market. 
Okay. Now look at, let's look at equities. I think in, many investors who are income focused might be attracted to foreign stocks where we tend to see higher dividend yields than in the U.S. Um, let's take a, a fund that does focus on that space, but takes a little bit more risk than you're comfortable with. That's Spider S&P International Dividend ETF. Talk about that one. So this fund targets the 100 highest yielding stocks listed outside the U.S. and then weights them based on on their dividend yield. So it is very aggressive in how it goes after yield. Uh, It does apply a modest risk adjustment in its selection approach. Uh, Basically, it penalizes stocks that have volatile yields over the past three years. But this risk adjustment is very modest and does little to prevent the fund from owning the riskiest names as yield really drives most of the uh, the ranking and selection that happens here. Reflecting its preference for riskier dividend payers, this fund has tended to underperform the market during downturns and exhibit greater volatility. Um, so this this is a fund that uh, really, I think, exemplifies some of the risk of chasing yield. Uh, a lot of its holdings aren't able to, to sustain their dividend payments. And even if they do, a lot of times they end up uh, providing disappointing returns and high risk along the way. Is the broad takeaway that investors should not focus so disproportionately on current income and instead keep in mind the whole mosaic of risk and total return rather than just current income? Absolutely. I think if there's a good rule of thumb, it's that if you're looking at a fund that offers a really high yield, uh, there's probably some risk behind that. It's, it's, It's not a good idea to just focus on yield alone. Remember, there's always the option to realize some capital gains if you need some additional income. You can always sell part of your portfolio uh, to, to increase the cash flows that your investments generate for you. So you have the ability to do that with a broadly diversified fund. I think that's a lot of times a lower risk way than you know just relying solely off of the, uh, the distribution payments from a, a portfolio. Because if you're really looking at the highest yielding stocks or bonds, a lot of times they come with a lot of risk as well. And that's not necessarily going to help you reach your long-term goals. You want to focus on um, cash flows that are sustainable. And oftentimes, the highest yielding funds aren't able to deliver that. Alex, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now we put a spotlight on two overlooked stocks. Today we're looking at two overlooked narrow moat stocks. DuPont is undervalued as investors are overly concerned about the company's long-term earnings power, elevated debt levels, and future liabilities related to the company's former PFAS operations. However, we see a bright long-term future for the company. While DuPont's transportation business has seen its profits sharply decline in the first half of 2020, we expect it will fully rebound as global auto builds recover. Longer term, we see growth coming from greater electric vehicle and hybrid adoption, as DuPont generates around 50% more revenue per vehicle on an EV or hybrid than for an internal combustion engine vehicle. We also see long-term growth in the electronics business from the adoption of 5G and in the safety and construction business from U.S. Housing Starts growth. Although DuPont carries elevated leverage as a result of the Dow DuPont spinoff, the company should quickly improve its balance sheet health 
following the sale of its nutrition and biosciences business. The transaction features a $7.3 billion dividend payment to DuPont, which it will mostly use to reduce debt. Finally, we view PFAS liabilities as a minor concern for DuPont. M&T Bank is trading at one of the largest discounts to our fair value estimate within our U.S. banking coverage, and therefore we think it presents an outsized chance for excess returns as the recovery progresses. M&T Bank is a mid-sized bank under excellent management that has consistently prioritized shareholder returns through a combination of superior underwriting, efficient operations, and savvy acquisitions. M&T has historically been a quality company with one of the best underwriting histories under our coverage. However, M&T is more exposed to commercial real estate than its peers. We think M&T will be able to navigate the upcoming credit losses, and once it does, we expect some of the risk premium associated with the name to dissipate. M&T is not only cheap, but it also has good management and a stable banking franchise. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. share their approach to open enrollment season. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. While spending on healthcare declined precipitously in the first half of the year, things picked up in the third quarter. Joining me today to talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about our healthcare spending in terms of our financial plan is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, thank you for being here. Susan, it's great to be here. Thank you. Now, given that the pandemic is first and foremost a health crisis, it seems a little ironic that healthcare spending declined as much as it did in the first half of the year. What do you make of that? It really was surprising to me, Susan, when I um, started researching this. But when you think about it, it's perfectly logical because, you know, sort of remember where we were in the spring and summer months, a lot of people put non-essential health care on hold. And in some cases, they put essential health care on hold, unfortunately. So, you know, people had annual physicals scheduled or colonoscopies or knee replacements. A lot of those things simply weren't happening in the first half, either because, uh the healthcare providers just weren't there, weren't providing those services, or in some cases, people put off receiving those services. So that is why we did see healthcare spending come to a pretty significant uh, decline during the first half, even though COVID was raging. But things did pick up a bit in the third quarter, right? They did. So we saw a big jump up in terms of GDP growth overall in the third quarter, and a healthy share of that was healthcare spending, which jumped by 18%. So um, it, a big, big comeback for healthcare spending. Now, many people wrestle with their healthcare costs and healthcare expenses. How should we, you know, even if we're covered by um, insurance through our employer, health insurance through our employer, how should we be thinking about healthcare spending within our financial plans? Well, it's a really big topic, Susan, and I think we're at the right time of year to be talking about it because it's open enrollment season for many employers. Um, and so if you are confronted with choices in your healthcare coverage, I think one of the key things you can do is make sure that you're making the right choice for you. So increasingly large employers are offering their employees the traditional pervert, preferred pro provider organization, the PPO plan, 
or the high deductible health care plan. And a lot of consumers sort of reflexively say, I want the more certainty. I don't want high out-of-pocket costs. But my advice is really to run the numbers, look at your health care spending, what you expect it to be in 2021. What you might find is because the premiums are lower on the high deductible plans typically, and in some cases, employers provide subsidies for their employees to choose the high deductible plan, when all is said and done, you may actually be better off in the high deductible plan. Now, if you don't have any choice in the matter, that's, it is what it is, but really be thoughtful about making your choices in terms of health care coverage. Don't just fall back on whatever you selected last year because it's not necessarily going to be the, the most financially savvy choice for you going forward. Now, most high deductible plans come with access to a health savings account, and you've talked about these before. You really like these accounts. Talk a little bit about why people should be pursuing their health savings account if they're offered one. The tax benefits are really the key reason. Like anyone else who has looked at these plans, I've been so impressed by the fact that you receive better tax treatment on your contributions to the HSA than you would with any other vehicle, whether a 401k or a Roth IRA. And the key reason is that you're putting in pre-tax dollars to the extent that you've got that money invested and in earning any type of interest. You're not getting taxed on as long as the money is inside the account. And then any with withdrawals for qualified health care expenses also come out tax-free. So at a minimum, if you are someone who is covered by a high deductible plan and you expect to have any health care expenditures at all, plan to run it through the HSA to enjoy those tax benefits. The tax benefits really accrue, though, to people who can afford to use other assets to pay for their health care expenses. So where they can get that money invested in the HSA, then they can really enjoy that tax-advantaged compounding over a longer period of time. It's not use it or lose it for HSA assets. There's oftentimes confusion about that. People think that it's like a flexible spending arrangement. It's not. You can get that money invested and leave it in the account for the long haul and enjoy the tax benefits for a longer period of time. And let's pivot and talk a little bit about healthcare costs in retirement. How should we be thinking about those even before we're retired? And then how, what are some ideas for managing them while in retirement? It's a, a big topic, Susan. I think the key point I would make is that people should really try to get a sense of what their spending will look like on healthcare and retirement. It'll be different than if you were covered by an employer plan, obviously. You'll have Medicare, but you also will have some coverage that you'll have to buy on your own. So selecting the right coverage there is certainly important. And uh, Mark Miller, who is a contributor to Morningstar.com, writes a lot about managing healthcare costs in, in retirement. We're in Medicare open enrollment season now, and, and Mark writes about how to make smart choices there. But I think it's also important as a retiree to get your arms around some of the costs that you'll be on the hook for. So Fidelity every year comes out with an annual estimate of what a 65-year-old couple will spend over their retirement time horizon. The most recent figures came in at around $300,000, and that does not include long-term care expenses. So there are a lot of different variables. It's also, I think, important to bear in mind our colleague David Blanchett's research that points to retirement spending trending up 
later in retirement, largely because of uninsured healthcare costs. So your healthcare spending in retirement won't be a flat line, but definitely factor it in as part of your financial plan. Get a plan for long-term care. If you're bringing HSA, health savings account assets into retirement, all the better, but do plan to spend them during your retirement time horizon because they're generally not great assets to leave to anyone other than your spouse. So a lot of different variables there, but it's it's a huge and important topic. It sure is. And, and it's a big spend for a lot of people. So to your point, really important to think about it as part of your financial plan. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us today, Christine. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. Great to be here. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Now, Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services suggests funds for foreign stocks. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. If investors are doing some portfolio maintenance near year end, they may discover that their portfolios are lighter on foreign stocks than they may have expected. Joining me to share some perspective on that issue and to highlight a few broad foreign stock funds is Russ Kinnell. He's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research. Russ, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here, Christine. Russ, um, let's talk about why foreign stocks have underperformed. We're, we've had several years running uh, of this underperformance relative to U.S. Why is this happening? Yeah, you know, I think there's a bunch of factors going on, but uh, one is simply uh, the dollar's been strong for a lot of those times. Uh, another is that uh, the Fed has been more accommodative uh, than the European Central Bank and many other central banks, and that obviously is uh, propelled uh, U.S. stocks. And I think finally, uh, a lot of the big uh, tech names that are just dominating returns now are in the U.S. Not all of them. Alibaba is in China, obviously. Uh, so there's some others, uh, but but really uh, the the ubiquitous fangs are are in the U.S. And so that's another element too. I feel like we've had this conversation on multiple occasions over the past several years. But can you talk about why? investors would want to think about maintaining uh, international diversification in their equity portfolios. That's right. Well, we've seen this movie before. You may recall in the late 90s, a lot of people's, the U.S. dominated uh, foreign and, uh, markets and, and a lot of people kind of puffed their chest and said, well, U.S. companies are superior. Our model of capitalism is superior. Who needs foreign companies. And of course, uh, we got humbled by uh, a very severe bear market and the rest of the world uh, outperformed the U.S. for about 10 years. Now we've had another 10 years of U.S. outperformance. Uh, so that doesn't mean that uh, the calendar change will start the, the decade for foreign equities. It, it never works that nicely, but uh, it certainly means that there's a lot of value in diversification uh, just as there's value in any other form of diversification. It's not that this area will always do well. It's that there are times when it will do better than the U.S., and therefore that uh, adds some value to our returns on a risk-adjusted basis. If investors are doing some year-end rebalancing and they're sort of in there looking at their foreign stock weightings and determining that they maybe need to add some, some more foreign stock exposure, you brought some funds that you and the team like quite a bit. Um, let's start with a really simple idea, which would be to just use some sort of a plain vanilla uh, total stock market index that that invests overseas. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You can buy some really low cost uh, overseas index funds. 
um, it, for a while, there was a bigger gap in fees between the U.S.-based market indexes and, and foreign, but now they're very cheap if you're buying a, a cap-weighted index uh, from Vanguard or iShares. Uh, they're very cheap, and so I think that's a great uh, option uh, to, to build the core of your foreign equity portfolio. How about American funds, international growth and income? I know that's another one that you and the team like, and I have it in some model portfolios for Morningstar as well. Talk about um, what you and the team see there that you like so much. Yeah, I think uh, dividend focus is really an American funds wheelhouse. And so I really like their dividend focus. Uh, This fund has a modest dividend mandate, and that is it has to have a pre-expense yield uh, slightly above uh, the the total foreign market, so it's a modest goal. But what that means is, by by focusing on uh, dividends, but not going to an extreme, it means they're not taking on huge risks. Because when you really emphasize yields and try to have a really big yield relative to the market, you're going to be buying highly debted companies, companies with no growth prospects, and so you're taking on a lot more risk. Uh, Capital Group over the years has shown it's very good at this strategy. It's very good at foreign equities. Uh, The A shares and some other shares are pretty cheap too. They're a good steward. So it's not a thrilling fund, but it's a nice core fund. And T. Rowe Price Overseas Stock is another fund that you and the team like. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, this is another kind of sleepy core fund more that's fairly diversified, about 150 names. Uh, Ray Mills has done a really nice job over the years. You look at year-to-year performance and you'll see generally it's not too far off from the benchmark and peer group, uh, but they're good stock pickers. And over time, the idea is that those stock picks will will shine through. So again, a nice core fund that uh, won't be very exciting, but, it, but again, I think will do the job well. Okay, Russ, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you for taking the time to be here. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Lastly, here are Karen Wallace from Morningstar Inc. and Alyssa Stankwitz from Morningstar Research Services. ESG funds have gained a lot of traction with investors in the past few years. And no surprise, there are more ESG funds out there than ever before. With an increasingly crowded landscape, Investors looking for an ESG fund want to know if ESG concerns play a central role in buy and sell decisions or whether they're barely considered at all. Morningstar analysts have developed a new assessment that helps investors answer this question and more. I'm here with Alyssa Stankowitz, an analyst on Morningstar's manager research team, to discuss Morningstar's new ESG commitment level. Alyssa, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Alyssa, you and your team do very extensive evaluations of funds' resources and strategies. Can you discuss some of the high-level findings that you've come that have come out of your research? Yeah. So one thing we expected is that the level of quality varies really widely. Some funds take a rigorous, in-depth approach to integrating ESG. Others may be labeled ESG or sustainable, but really do very little. One surprise was just how many asset managers don't label themselves ESG, but do regularly consider those factors. In many cases, managers cite sustainability as a helpful lens for understanding financially material risks and opportunities. So this ESG commitment level was designed to provide investors a really clear understanding of the ESG fund landscape. Currently, most investors are dependent on marketing materials to sift through different approaches to ESG investing, But even if that information is trustworthy, 
it's hard to compare one fund to another. So that's where Morningstar comes in. Our unique position as independent researchers allows us to help investors navigate an increasingly confusing space. I'd like to stay here a second and discuss that notion of independence. What does that mean? So the ESG commitment level is specifically geared towards investors and advisors, not the fund managers or firms themselves. As with our analyst rating, asset managers have no say in whether we consider them in our reports. So we, as analysts, are under no pressure to give a good or bad rating to a fund. We develop our own opinions through our research, and because we're independent, we can be really transparent about those opinions. And what are some of the criteria that analysts look for when determining a fund's commitment level? What makes a leader? So it starts with the fund's ESG philosophy, but then it's backed up by the resources they're committing to the effort, how strong the process is for considering and integrating ESG in the fund, and then how active the team is about engaging with portfolio companies on sustainability issues. A lot of it is actually very similar to how we look at funds for the analyst rating. You want to know how strong a fund strategy is, that the team is well supported in carrying that out, and that the process is robust enough to deliver a consistently strong portfolio. Often, the best performers on ESG have developed really thorough proprietary frameworks for evaluating companies, and once a company makes it into the portfolio, they're active about engaging with company management to ensure they're making progress on sustainability issues. Some fund managers actually have a policy that requires them to sell out of a company if they're not making enough progress. So what would be the flip side of that? What would be some characteristics of a fund that you would give a low score to? Sure. So in some cases, you'll see a fund that's labeled sustainable or ESG. But once we start digging into the resources and the process backing that up, we find they're really not doing much at all. The portfolio managers may look for ESG opportunities, but there may not be any actual minimum criteria or firm guidelines to make sure the portfolio reflects the ESG mandate. Some of these are pretty obvious. You wouldn't expect an ESG fund to have huge holdings in the oil and gas industry. So if a fund does, that's something we wanna take a closer look at. It's also worth noting that because we'll eventually extend the ESG commitment level to the, all of the funds in our coverage universe, some funds that we think really highly of from a financial perspective might receive a low or basic ESG commitment level. Some funds just make it clear that ESG isn't part of their process, and that doesn't necessarily mean the fund won't perform well. So that's why we've kept the analyst rating separate from the ESG commitment level. So that's a good point, Alyssa. How should investors use this commitment level alongside the Morningstar analyst rating or the Morningstar sustainability rating? So it's important to note that the ESG commitment level is completely separate from our other ratings. If a fund is a leader, which is the top ESG commitment level, that doesn't mean they'll receive an upgrade or a medal in the analyst rating. The analyst rating seeks to identify funds that will outperform the category index in terms of financial return, or alpha. The ESG commitment level is designed to identify funds that have stronger or weaker approaches from a sustainability perspective. And the way this differs from the sustainability rating or the globe rating is that that's really based on the companies that are currently in a fund's portfolio. So it's more of an aggregate of those companies' sustainability scores, and it's not as forward-looking as this ESG commitment level. 
Alyssa, thank you so much for being here to discuss this ESG commitment level. Not all ESG funds are alike, and this rating really helps investors go under the hood to find funds that take the smartest and most thoughtful approaches to ESG investing. Thank you so much for being here to discuss it. Thank you so much for having me. For Morningstar, I'm Karen Wallace. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.